afternoon and welcome to today's podcast brought to you by Equine Devil's Advocate. Yes, it is time for follow-up Friday. Um, here in England, the weather is not too terrible. It's a little bit more blustery today, so you might hear a bit more from Creaky Tree. And as yet, as yet, the neighbour is quiet, although I cannot guarantee that that will last for very long. This episode will, of course, include part two of The Curse of Tutankhamun, but before we get to that, last Friday, I asked a question of you. The question was, what does your horse mean to you? A tough question indeed. So, let's hear some of your responses. Needless to say, Hot Stuff had no correspondence this week, but I know he won't be offended, and it cannot be a bad thing, given that question. So let's start with this one. Wow, so hard to answer. He means so much on so many levels. I am wondering what I mean to him as much as what he means to me. I want him as a friend, a partner to share and enjoy new challenges. He means a chance to escape the drudgery of life, to have the freedom of feeling the sun, the wind and the rain. He means I can challenge and develop my knowledge or simply just be me. Unfortunately, I cannot believe that I would not tick all those boxes for him. And that just leaves me with another question to answer. I feel I want to mean the same to him as he is for me. Clearly, I need to consider both sides of the partnership. And this another one. A very difficult question because it has changed as I have grown in my life. As a child, it was all about the fun and the excitement. I was so lucky to have a little horse that did everything I asked of him so readily and easily. Then when I started to compete in dressage, I began to realise about the generosity of horses. How this sport gave me a goal, a personal goal to work at, and a huge sense of achievement. Not by winning, but by being committed and my dedication but only because the horse's willingness to join me in that goal, to work with me in those achievements. They are true friends to me. Then we have, My horse brings pleasure and calmness to a stressful and non-stop world. I love just taking ten minutes when he's eating his dinner to lean against him and rest my head in the curve of his back feeling the heat of his skin, the smell of his coat, and listening to him breathe. He brings a purpose to my life, making my get-up early in the dead of winter to check him, and looking forward to the working day ending to rush up and see him. He also allows me to live out my cowboy fantasies in South London. LOL. (laughs) That's really great. Thank you for that. And another... My horse brings me escapism from the real world. He is my sanctuary. When I am with him, nothing matters from the outside world. 
and another. What my horses mean to me, my horses are my sanity. They are my life and they are my best friends. Without them, I'm not sure that I would be here as throughout my darkest times, they gave me a reason to go on. Just being around them gives me a sense of belonging and makes me feel free. I honestly don't know what I would do without them. And here's another one that I particularly enjoyed. My horse has made me a better person. He has taught me patience and calmness. He has taught me empathy and above all, he has taught me objectivity. I have learned from him to dislike the deed, not the horse itself. A valuable lesson for me to use in my working life, my family life and my friendships. Because of my horse, I am a better, happier person all round. And I think we'll finish with this one. I cannot believe how this horse has stolen my heart. He's got me through an awful year of personal ill health, both physically and mentally. So I owe him the best life he can have. So true. And um, thank you for all your correspondence. It's great to have them. And the word on the street is that everybody else does actually enjoy listening to your thoughts and your experiences. So, yeah, keep them coming. Podbean or Facebook. Um, and just to let you know, we are actually back on Spotify. We had a bit of a glitch there. But if you want to use Spotify, it is all now back up and running. So yes, tis true, it was actually a difficult question, but also a very intriguing one. It's not perhaps difficult to know your own feelings, but it could be considered brave to perhaps admit them outwardly. Because for some reason in this horse world that we're also addicted to, if you say, I love my horse, and go all gooey-eyed and tell anyone who will listen, In some circles, you are actually thought of as soft, soppy, a poor leader, and therefore a walkover. Somehow, a weak person that your horse will inevitably take advantage of. Not someone to be admired or respected or even taken seriously. Now, why is that? Could it be because it's an emotion and we are told not to have emotion and express them when it comes to working and being with our horses. Does that make sense? Well, we here at Equine Devil's Advocate say, no, it does not make sense. Why must love be considered a weakness? Love can in fact be a great, great strength, a huge asset, especially with horses. It can be the very reason we want to establish boundaries. It can be the very reason we don't give up. It can be the very reason we seek answers to many problems and challenges. And it can be the very reason we are able to let them go. Perhaps to a better partner. Perhaps to a better stability. Perhaps to what could be a better life for them. The truth is, very few people have any problem whatsoever saying, my horse loves me. Well, my question to you this week is, does he or she? And how do you identify it? How do you know 
what made you realize, or what made you realize the opposite? Now, people, this is a tough question. It requires a bit of soul searching, and perhaps a love of honesty. But surely, that is a strength. Answers, please, to www.equinedevilsadvocate.com, Facebook, Podbean, or Spotify. So now, back to the story of the curse of Tutankhamun. Now, I left you on Monday in the story where it was time, time for him to go. The owners had decided to let him go. They were done. Enough was enough. I was horrified, could not believe what I had just heard and blurted out, I want him. Please, can I have him? My mother and the owner looked at me. My answer? Could you please go and help bring the polar ponies in and then pop to the car and fetch my blue jacket that's in the boot? Hmm. Adult code speak for do not discuss in front of the child. So, thwarted, I toddled off dutifully, as I was told, to do the things I was asked to do, which, of course, was the best plan of action in the circumstances to be the perfect child. I hadn't given up. In fact, I had only just started. Two hours of perfect chore, child, aching for some response from the adults. Nothing, not a peep. Almost as though they had forgotten I'd asked the question. Later that evening, desperation started to sink in. I could think of nothing else. I was dying inside. Desperate measures call for desperate actions. So I tried a slightly different tack. Please. How? How can a seven-year-old make a word sound so long without even drawing breath? I then threw in the crouching, knock-kneed approach as well. You know, the one like when you need a wee. Eyes all scrunched up, grimacing, the Wallace and Gromit smile. Please. Then I squinted up at my mother. Oops, a bad move. Do you need the bathroom? She asked. Yes, I said, thinking perfect tour child is clearly a better bet. Never mind, whatever it takes. Eventually, after what seemed like forever, I felt I'd made some progress. My mother said, I will speak to your father. Ha! Result. Or was it? A small doubt started to creep in. He is away. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's got to be a good thing because he hasn't seen any of the horrid child flinging. But she will tell him. I know she will. Many more days of torture. Internal heart-twisting torture. Oh, and chores followed. You see, my father was working abroad for three months, so he'd call my mother mostly quite late in the evening when my brother and I were supposed to be in bed. 
I did everything I could to stay awake until I heard the phone ring. I tippy-toed onto the landing, straining to hear the word, the golden name, Tutankhamun. Did I hear it in the conversation? No. All I can hear is my mother's voice. No distinguishable words. What I really wanted to do, really wanted to do, was dash down the stairs, whip the phone out of her hand, and bellow down it, Can I have him? Can I have him? Can I have him? Please, can I have him? But then I thought, best not. It will not help my cause. No, perfect chore child is my best bet. Another long, long, largely sleepless night. Did she ask him? What did he say? What is going on? Over breakfast, my mother said, Your father phoned last night. Before she'd even finished her sentence, What did he say? What did he say? I said, holding my breath, my fingers crossed. My reply, We are going to discuss it tonight. I felt like a deflated balloon. Ugh! More child cruelty. Ugh! More chores. And another night on the landing. This time, I snuck down three more stairs in the hope I might be able to hear better. I had counted and identified the creaky one during the day. But I still couldn't hear what they were saying. Now every word sounded like Tutankhamun because I wanted it to be so. I cannot tell you how long exactly all this discussing took. It's like a bad dream. I've sort of erased it from my memory. And so, to the eventual answer. Over breakfast one morning, my mother said, your father said, yes. Hurrah! Perfect child has prevailed. I am going to have my very own most beautiful pony, my Tutankhamun. It was the most indescribable feeling, like all your Christmases and birthdays all rolled up into one. No, wait, it was more than that, better than that, bigger than that. Just this abundance of joy that makes your toes curl. And so Tutankhamun became mine. The money changed hands. In fact, it was actually not a lot of money, for Tutankhamun came free with his tack. That's what was paid for, his saddle and his bridle and his rugs. So great was the previous owner's relief to get rid of him, to get him off her hands. Then something happened, something I really did not foresee. I did not see it coming. Lovely pony purchasing mummy morphed into scary finger-wagging mama. Out came the beautifully manicured left index finger pointing at me and wagging in perfect harmony with her words. Don't you ever come back and tell me you don't want that pony because I do not want to hear it. Oh, God. Right. She means it. Oh.
But it didn't matter because I now had my dream, my golden pony, my very own Tutankhamun. And so I rode for three minutes and then I became the next ragdoll. No longer perfect tall child, now I am ragdoll child. Flung every which way, over the front, out the back, off the side, again and again and again and again. Every single day for weeks. I became, as every child had before me, the victim of his speciality. A standing start, flat out gallop, and bucking with a vigour you have never seen. As soon as I would off, he would make a beeline for mostly the biggest horse in the indoor skull. He would squeeze himself between the horse and the wall and then peep his beautiful little face around its chest, surveying the carnage of bodies that he'd reaped and left in his wake. As quite often, it was not just me on the floor, there were other bodies too, as his speed startled them, and they set off and deposited their riders somewhere else on the floor. On occasions, if I was in a fit state to know which way was up and my limbs were all facing the correct way, I would look at his wide-eyed expression as he peeped round from his hiding place. When I looked at him, it was like, oops, I'm in trouble now. He knew it was devilish, this terrible thing that he did. He knew. But I persevered. I had to. I couldn't bear the thought of him leaving. Was I heartbroken? Yes. Was I devastated? Yes. Was I absolutely terrified? Oh, indeed, yes. But I was actually more fearful of morphing, finger-wagging Mama re-emerging. I would not allow myself to admit I didn't want to ride him anymore because I still wanted him. In his stable, I would sit with him and say, how can you be so beautiful and so very horrible? He would lift his head from his munching on the hay, great tufts of it sticking out of either side of his mouth, prick his ears and look at me with those big angelic eyes. Yum, 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 yum. My fear grew. More sleepless nights not waiting for the phone to ring this time, but with worry and tears, so many tears, and so conflicted. I still so very much wanted him, but the airborne gymnastics were becoming too much to bear and lurking always in the back of my mind. Scary Mama with her pointy finger. Inevitably, the day came when... I was so besides myself, I could cope no more. Standing in front of his stable, tears rolling down my cheeks, looking up at my mother, I wanted to say, I don't want to ride him. But I had a lump in my throat that was so big, I couldn't actually speak. My world had ended. I was broken, broken by the curse of Tutankhamun.
At that moment, I heard footsteps coming down the walkway between the stables, and then a voice. I looked up and silhouetted in the sunshine that was flooding through the open barn doors. I saw a girl, a teenage girl, and she was walking towards us. She said, I will help you. She is an angel, I thought, a real live angel. My throat cleared and my tears stopped. I held my tongue and I swallowed my words. I looked at my mother and said, she's going to help me ride him. So, join us here at Equine Devil's Advocate on Monday for part three of The Curse of Tutankhamun. Till then, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take care and we will speak soon.